With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. John Wertheim here, and it's this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. And in-studio guest we have today, Mark Ein is the longtime owner of the Washington Castles and World Team Tennis, former USTA board member, lover of tennis, tennis philanthropist, and now he's taken over the event in Washington, D.C. that has been there for decades. Um, Mark was doing business in lower Manhattan and decided to come by. We are more than happy to uh, to welcome him in. Thanks for... Uh, Thanks for coming, doing this in person. Thanks for having me. It's always uh, always great to see you, John. Likewise, I want to start with your background in tennis because uh, I think that's relevant to why you saw fit to take over this uh, DC event. But how did you get into this game? Yeah, I developed a love for the game when I was a young kid. My parents played, and it was in the 70s, which was obviously a tennis boom in the United States. And so we used to go play in a public park down the street from our house and I played competitively as a kid and taught tennis and uh, I actually the highlight of my summers each year as a youth is I was a ball kid at what is now the city open and uh, I so vividly remember those days Um, and it really it really inspired uh, my even deeper love of the sport. You've gone from being a ball kid to now taking over the event at which you were a ball kid. (laughs) Um, Why? Why would you do this? I, I think it's for I love the game of tennis, and I think to have a healthy sport anywhere, you need to have a healthy pro ecosystem. I think when I was a kid, and I was a ball kid there, and at the indoor tournament in D.C., there were 46 WTA and ATP events in the United States. Today, there's 12. The other sports, the five major sports, if you include soccer, are in the 30 largest markets in the United States, more or less, for four to six months out of the year. So if you're a young kid and you're into sports, you have those five sports where for most of the year you can go watch the players, watch them practice, sit up close, be inspired by them and aspire to be them. In tennis, if you don't live in one of 12 markets in the United States where we're in those markets for one or two weeks, you miss that opportunity unless your parents take you to travel. And I just think it's really important. I've seen how deeply important this event is to our community in Washington, D.C., and it was potentially going to leave our community. And as someone who has been impacted so much by that event, I just couldn't let that happen, and I wanted to step in and make sure it stayed in D.C. forever. You read that piece in the Times last week about uh, tennis tournaments migrating away from uh, the United States? Sort of the same statistics yeah. you were pointing to. Yeah, I did, and uh, it's a real event. I mean, I mean, real issue. I, you know, I was, as you mentioned, I was on the USTA board, and I saw some of the events that are most of them had already left, but a few events leave, and I was always a little bit amazed that we couldn't find a way to save them. I mean, if you look at 
um, at other sports and how many people of means have stepped in to buy those either as the lead owner or as part of a group. It's hundreds and hundreds of people put in a huge amount of money to be part of those sports. And I, I just think tennis has never really um, promoted this as a way for people who love the sport, who have the ability to support the game. And um, I'll tell you, the amount of calls I've gotten since I did this makes me realize that there is, a, I think, a really large pool of people who would do it if they were more aware of it. And uh, Who would do what? You mean people with, with means taking over a tournament? Yeah, who community. would save tournaments, invest in tournaments, bring some back if we could ever do it. And I just think it's absolutely critical. I think... I just think that if you want tennis in America to be good, you have to have a really strong, vibrant pro ecosystem. What about the flip side of that, which is this is a global business, and what do we do with global? You know, we, we look to expand, and we look to new markets, and there are only so many weeks we can hold tournaments. Hey, isn't it great? Not that these events necessarily are leaving the U.S., but tennis is in markets now that it never dreamed of being in when you and I were kids. Yeah, I think that is great. So I don't think going back to 45 or 46 in the U.S. is the answer, but certainly you don't want to lose any more, and it'd be nice if you ever could figure out how to get a few back. I just want to make sure we don't lose any more as a starting point. But no, the global the global aspect of the sport is one of the great appeals of it, both on the event side and on the player side, and it's something we shouldn't fight, we should embrace. If I read... Uh stories online with with a highlighter i would have taken it out for this line and that same story i was referring to and jamie we can we can post that uh link um but this was um adam zagoria's story in the times that talked about events leaving and um a tournament director was quoted as saying that america americans want to root for american athletes essentially that um one of the reasons you know it's a chicken and egg conundrum obviously but one of the reasons why these events are leaving is because there aren't the american players to attract crowds and TV. Americans like rooting for their own. You buy that? Nope. Not at all. I No, I don't. I, I've heard that argument over and over again that for tennis in America to be strong, you have to have American champions. There's no doubt it is helpful to have champions that people can relate to. And if they're from your country, that's a way of people relating them. I think it's hard for me to imagine that people can't be inspired and awed by Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, um, Novak Djokovic, and now to the next generation, Alexander Zverev and Felix Ogijay Aliasmi, on all those players, as well as Francis Tiafo, who's from my hometown, and the young Americans who are coming up. And I just don't, it's not the world we live in. We live in a global world. People love athletes, whether they're from this country, other countries. They love actors, regardless of where they are. They, they love journalists from wherever they are. Can I give you my, uh, my business school hypothetical? Please. What is the problem with having regional tours that come together for big events like the majors? The problem with that is that events, you, you, it is very helpful to have stars at the events. You need big stars at the events. And I think, I'm not sure you have enough, I'm not sure you have enough stars to support a regional, uh, regional tour that came together. Um, and again, I think if you want to promote the game, you need to have the best players wherever, wherever the events are. I was reading a, a biography recently of Suzanne Longland from 100 years ago. You know, this was the, the Roaring Twenties. And it talks about how promoters pop up and try and seduce the players with higher purses and how much of the revenue should be shared by all the players in the field. And some of this was pre-open era. Some of this was amateurism versus professionals. But it did strike me that in France and Monte Carlo and in Europe in the 1920s, 
it was essentially the same conversation we're having now. Is this just inherent to tennis? Is this at all fixable? Right. Does this cost, pre- you know, the, the, the mar- market is what the market is and the stars want more money and how many players should tennis subsidize and promoters coming in with sweeter offers and why is the tournament in this market and not in that market? I mean, it's a lot of the same conversations we're having in 2019. I think the key, there's a few ways to make events successful. One is to have a huge amount of the stars, which is why the four Grand Slams are four of the greatest sporting events in the world, regardless of sport, because everyone comes together, and they're, they're, they're extraordinary in that respect. Um, and then some of the next level events also have an amazing abundance of stars. But I think you can make events still incredibly appealing to fans, um, as long as they're great events. When you look at where tournaments are successful, it's because they're great events for tennis fans, but they're also great on-ramps to the sport for people who may not think about tennis all the time. You, know, you may, I've mentioned I've, we've owned the Castles for 12 years, and we've had amazing crowds, bigger crowds than anyone's ever had. And the way we do that is we have a hardcore group of tennis fans who love seeing players up close in that format, but then we have a ton of other people who come because it's a really great way to see tennis. Um, and other events, can we can do the same. That's what we're going to do at the City Open. The City Open, every night of the week it's in Washington, will be the place to be. When, if you love tennis, you're going to see some of the best players in the world, but if you love good food, you're going to be able to do that. We'll have music. We'll have all kinds of things, something for everyone, so that you, so that you appeal to a big audience, and I think that's the, that's the key to making events great. If you are in a Grand Slam, you just have to do a re- throw a really high quality event that is something for everyone, and it works. And we see it when people take that take that uh, philosophy. We should point out too that you you run very successful businesses, and th- this is not your this <laughs> this is this is passion, and you're not doing this to lose money. But this is not how you're. This isn't my day bill. job. No, thank it's goodness it's job. not. <laughs> why, do you, why do you say? Wait, wait, stop there. Why, why do you say thank goodness? Well, I, I don't think – I mean, there's not that many people these days who are getting to any sport because they're, they think it's going to make them wealthy. It, it turns out that it actually has because of rising franchise values, but most people that wasn't their mindset when they got into it. Um, but I, I do think, by the way, that tennis events are arguably some of the more undervalued events, again, because it just don't – it's not something that people think about as much. You know, NBA and NFL and – NHL and Major League Baseball franchises have gone up largely because there's a hugely more people who want them than there are ones available. And so like pieces of art, they rise to values well beyond their economic value. I think tennis events should be the same. They don't come up very often. They're really special. If you want to do something really meaningful in your community, owning a tennis event is also a special opportunity. And so um, I, I do think there'll be rising franchise values for these events. But it is not the reason to do this. Be, beyond this scarcity aspect, right? There are only so many. The, the, you know, the, the old joke about owning an NFL team. Well, there, you know, there are a hundred senators. There are only thirty-two <laughs> NFL team owners. Thirty-one with the Packers. Um, but is there inherent value in the sporting? I mean, be, beyond the scarcity and beyond the premium you would pay on owning a sporting event, is there inherent value in owning? A 500-level tennis tournament these days? Sure. I mean, the City Open is the fifth biggest tennis tournament in the United States. And um, we think that over time we can build a business plan that is an attractive business plan um, that and drives attractive results. We also think it's a platform to do all kinds of other things. Again, it's not why I'm doing it. I don't think that would be the reason for someone to do this. But I also think it is important if you want events to be viable – 
they should also be economically sustainable and economically attractive. And our plan is to make the city open that over time. Um, in the short term, it's going to take a considerable amount of investment and a lot of work, but we believe that there's a path to get there. Let me ask you a macro question about the sports as, as a sector these days. That professional sports contracts are going through the roof. I don't know if you're watching the NBA playoffs, but just sort of casually they're talking about how so-and-so players making $42 million next year. $42 million. Um, a lot of this in the franchise valuation, this is all being driven by media rights, right? That uh, the basketball-related income, the professional soccer, professional football, those salaries are all being driven by this explosion of media rights. To, to, and to sponsorship. And some sponsorship and, and, some, and some venue plays. Yeah. You know, the, the Rams' new stadium is going to be state-of-the-art. But um, as we move away from the traditional media model and it's cord-cutting versus streaming and the way we consume media is changing, are we worried that that's going to completely change this infrastructure of sports? Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's an uncertainty and unknown, and I could see a range of outcomes. Um, you've identified what has driven – team values and, and player compensation up to this point. There's an argument going forward that that's going to change and then the unbundling of the cable bundle will change the landscape for rights. The flip side is is that there's a set of new players like the Amazons of the world who are trying to drive audience through owning media rights. And the question is, will you have enough people who want them to drive the prices even further? I think and everyone has a theory about it. I, I think the thing we know is it's going to be different in the future. Where it ends up it remains to be seen. I always say, like, my, my mom pays whatever it is, $7.50 a month to ESPN. She doesn't know she gets ESPN. ESPN then takes that sub fee and buys rights to games at billions and billions of dollars. I mean, that, that whole model, when people no longer have to pay for services they perhaps don't want or don't even know they get, that could have a pretty big trickle-down effect. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I that's think. the beautiful thing about markets and capitalism, creative destruction, right? So something grows in a certain way, and it ends up in a certain place, but then you realize that there's parts of it that don't make sense, like your mother paying indirectly paying for ESPN, and hence we have a change now. That combined with technology, where people can get access to the content anywhere they are, um, and you don't need a cable box, is making the change. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. I think the thing we also know is that sports content is unique. It is it is content that you need to view in real time. It is something that brings people together. I mean, my passion for this is, is really – there's very few things other than sports, maybe music, that bring people together. It's Sports is a connective tissue among societies and between societies, and I really am passionate about that. When I think about my experience owning the Castles, while we've won championships and set records for winning streaks, my best memory is looking around the stands – and seeing thousands of people in my community coming together to have mem to create memories with each other. And whether you're doing that in stadium or you're doing that around a TV or around a computer screen, sports is unique in that respect. And so I think it's always going to be very valuable. How valuable it is in the future um, is what we're all going to find out. You own, the, uh, you own the Castles, but you own another professional sports team <laughs> as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I own the Washington Justice and the Overwatch Esports League, which is the pre preeminent esports league in the world. It's been extraordinary. We 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 acquired the franchise in the fall, and we've been playing this season. And uh, 
you know, esports, I would say, is the biggest thing in the world that no one over 30 <laughs> knows exists. <laughs> but if you're under 30, this is what you're spending your time doing. And the passion and size of this community is unbelievable. You know, um, video games, 2.2 billion people on Earth play video games. So you have this incredibly large universe of people who are playing themselves. And now it's turning to watching the best in the world play it, just like every other sport. And uh, it's been it's been fascinating and thrilling and really exciting to be part of this this new world that I think when you look forward is going to be a huge part of the sports landscape. I always use that line you said. You said someone gave you a key to a room and you turn it and everyone it's under like the age a, of 30 it's like resides. A, it's like a trap door under the floor and there's this alternative mm -hmm. universe of millions and millions of people having the time in their life. But when you go to these events, the energy in the room is extraordinary and the passion people have. And then the product, while even if it takes a while to understand what's going on, it's really exciting and it's really designed for today's audiences, it's always moving. There's always something happening, and um, it's gonna be it's gonna be fantastic to be part of this for a long time into the future. What can tennis learn from that? What what can you take from uh, from this experience and apply to tennis? Yeah, I mean, part of what I love about the game of tennis is the traditions, and I think you have to find a way to hold on to some of the traditions, but you also can't ignore the broader societal trends, and you've got it. We have to think about ways to balance the traditional parts of tennis and embracing the new younger audiences because the way they live their lives, the way they consume content, um, their attention spans just radically different. And you know, the demographic tennis, people have been saying this for a long time. 20 years ago they said tennis players and fans are in their 40s and if we don't do something, it's gonna be a problem. We, 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 10 we years kill ago for 40s, 50s, yeah, we and now it's 60s. And it's just not changing. And part of it is that the product itself doesn't appeal as much as it should to the younger, to a broad set of people in the younger generation. It should. It's a fantastic sport. It is a sport of a lifetime, not just you play your whole life, but the lessons you learn on the court stay with your whole life. That's for me one of the biggest things, the success I've been able to have in other parts of my life. A lot of times I really go back to those moments on the tennis court when I was getting killed by someone and I couldn't pass the ball and I couldn't substitute myself out and I had to figure it out. And that's kind of life. And I love this sport and I want as many people as possible to, to be involved in it, but we've got to find a way to make it appealing to younger generations. Um, Esports is designed for that generation and I think tennis really needs to think about how we can also be attractive to them. So what do we do here? I mean, I feel like everyone sort of has this conversation and you hear, I mean, I've heard 62 is a median age, um, 40, as, as you say, that, that would be a number that uh, tennis could aspire to. But the flip side is tradition kind of matters. And when you start to tinker with something too, and this isn't unique to tennis, I mean, you know this from business. I mean, you, you tinker with something too much and you've lost the core product. I mean, what is the formula here and what practically can be done to make this sport more appealing. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I look at my kids and the notion of them, hey, Del Potro's playing Djokovic for the next five hours. And yeah. it's just, it's, la it's a laughable proposition. I mean, yeah. there's no way they're sitting down to watch a best of five tennis match. Right. The flip side is tradition has value and equity. And if you turn this sport suddenly into a, a, a shootout and only one serve and, sh you know, I my, my pet peeve is on-court coaching. I mean, it seems like when the suggestions actually get thrown out to update this, everybody uh self-included sort of recoils what's 
what sort of the what, what's your formula here? Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not sure I have the magic formula, but I think you've thrown out a bunch of the ideas. You can play with the scoring system, you can play with coaching, and I will say, you and I have talked about this that I've generally been much more on the traditional side. That one of the great things about tennis is you have to figure out yourself. I'm beginning to come around on that a bit because I think the interaction between coach and player is something that's really interesting for people to see and and understand and and I and so I'm beginning to come around on that a bit um uh, though the, one of the things we did in team tennis two years ago that was fantastic is we mic the players and especially in doubles uh, the same technology that they mic LeBron James or Tom Brady you can use on a tennis right. court it's not obtrusive but to hear the players talking about um, the the play that they're about to make either on the server the return and then watching it happening was magic things like that bringing technology in to the game I w- and and look there's a lot of things that at one point were anathema too the tie break and you know uh was and no ad scoring and certain things i mean there's all kinds of things that have been and we've adopted over time i just think it's about finding it's about finding the balance but we can't be afraid to try to try new things and adapt them when they work dc is a joint event men uh, men and women though di- different tier it's it's not apples to apples necessarily but uh do you, do you wish it were one gender only or do you, or do you like that it's mixed Oh, I love that it's mixed. I think that's what another thing that makes tennis so special is the fact that it's men and women and, you know, little boys and little girls can come and be inspired and imagine them being on the court. Um, in addition to just both both, uh, both tours are enjoyable for regardless of what gender you are. But I, I just think it's one of the things that makes the sport great. There's a lot of really terrific uh, female athletes in the sport and – um, DC is one of the only five combined events in the United States. It's one, one of the things that really does make it appealing. And it's also, by the way, it's appealing to sponsors. Again, it's, it's important, and it's, it's appealing to people who want to come get suites and hospitality. They want to see both genders um, competing when they have the chance, and we should embrace that as part of tennis. You have taken over DC not as philanthropy. You have a history in the sport, though, and a history with this event. In particular, we talked earlier this year about what Larry Ellison has done with Indian Wells. We now have Stephen Ross with the Miami Open. You, you went to Miami? I did, yep. So, And you went to Indian Wells as well. Yep. I mean, is, is this uh, is this a new model for tennis? To, to find, I mean, no one's doing this to lose money. No one's doing this uh, as charitable contributions. But to find these individuals who have a personal investment in the sport and have them make a financial investment, is this – I hope so. And Ben Navarro in Charleston, he just did the same. And that event's great. I I really hope it is. I believe that – I believe there's plenty of other people out there if presented with the opportunity would do the same. I think the issue is there's not a ton of events left. uh, And there are days, you mentioned, it's hard to bring them back. But I think there's a couple things. One – uh, individuals like myself and the other you mentioned give some stability and long-term staying power to these events. We're all in our own way invested in the communities that where our events are, and I think that's deeply important. It's important because we care, but it's also important because we can make the events more successful. Um, and and I think that's another part of it. Hopefully pe- people, again, like the group of people you mentioned, can bring the skills that they have developed in building their businesses and then make the events more successful um, and more uh, accessible to people, too. 
Um, all right, last question. You you got to run. I got to run. What's 2019 <laughs> City Open? What the 2019 uh, City Open is going to be fantastic. I mean, Sell just it. as we've gotten into it, there's so much that we're going to do. So. Um, we're re-examining every single component of this of the event. First of all, uh, the fan experience is going to be transformed. We're going to have new food. We're going to have new hospitality areas for the general fan, not just VIPs. We're going to have other forms of entertainment on site, music and talks. Um, we may embrace pickleball as part of it because that's a big thing. Um, and so there's going to be something for there's going to be something for everyone. Uh, the the and. And then for the players, we're really reaching out to the players to, to – and it's been interesting. Players really love D.C., and we want to then make the player experience as good a player experience as they're on tour from the time they arrive to when they're at the hotel to when they're on site. So we're working really hard at that. And I would mention that this next generation of players, both on the men's and women's side, is incredibly exciting. They tend to also be largely hardcore players, and so they like playing at events like the City Open. And so I think we're going to have a fantastic – uh, we'll have a fantastic player field. And then um, we've got a wonderful uh, media arrangement with Tennis Channel. I don't know if you've heard of that, John, but that um, it's this pretty pretty special Fa- cable fastest channel. Growing, uh, fastest growing sports network uh, uh, on the cable and, dial. And if, this, if, it, if it hadn't been invented, someone in the sport mm-hmm. should because it's absolutely in- instrumental to the sport in the United States. But we're really thrilled about that, and they provide first ball to last ball coverage and uh, bring their A talent down. So we're, we, we love that. Um, and then lastly, and uh, not least importantly, the most important people there, the volunteers and the ball kids. This will be the best experience for volunteers and ball kids. So the little kids like me who get their start getting exposed to the pro game through that are going to have a terrific time. Roger Federer was a ball kid in Basel, and after the tournament That's every it. year, he throws That's a right. pizza party, and we're going to do the same thing in Washington. So no matter who you are, no matter how you touch the event, it's going to be transformed, and it's going to be a week that you'll never forget and hopefully want to come back year in and year out. Sold. That's a great mm-hmm. – you, you know, you mentioned the ball kids, though, real quick, to backtrack on that. I mean, yeah. that led to your essentially taking over this event it did. X years later. Yeah. But it is remarkable how many current pro players were former ball kids. And you, you go down the list, and the correlation is just astounding. And that speaks to your point, which is it's right in front of your – what is Billy Jean King has uh, as has a – Nice adage about that. Sort of, so you see it and you believe it. Um, that means more. And I, I think to your point that if you have zero Americans in the field, but kids are getting out there and they're seeing these players up close in person, they're on court, they're having this fun week in the sun, that will go a lot more towards building their affinity for tennis than whether John Isner is or isn't in the field. I mean, I'm a living example of that I used to talk about this all the time. Um, in the USTA community, when you go to any meeting and you ask people to raise their hand, people who are now leaders in the sport, if they had a similar experience to mine, the vast majority of them did. And so whether that turned you into Roger Federer and a great player or whether or, or it turned Mark it into I, me yeah, right. who ended up doing it, it is. but it also demonstrates how critically important it is for us to not just save these events but make these events thrive. Um, and so I'm thrilled we're doing our part here in Washington, and uh, and I hope uh, and I hope it'll something that'll continue around the country. Tennis is lucky to have you. Uh, you and I have day jobs to go back to, but this was great. <laughs> Glad you came in, and uh, c- congrats again on DC. Always love talking to you. Thanks, John. All right, thanks for uh, Mark Ein for spending some time with us for stopping in. He was in Lower Manhattan. I should have said in the beginning, Mark is the founder and CEO of Venture House. He's a venture capitalist, so. Uh, Tennis is his passion, not perhaps his prime 
source of income or uh, source of attention, but it's great to have him in the sport. Glad he could spend a few moments downtown. Uh, thanks, as always, to Jamie for her expertise in producing. Uh, Jamie, I want to ask you, as uh, as now a passionate tennis fan, but someone who didn't grow up in tennis, do you care about the nationality of tennis players? No, I think the internationalness of the sport is so incredible. Um, you know, I feel like there's something to be said for getting behind someone from your hometown or home place or if you're from a, a, a specific country, you know, but I don't feel like I need to get behind an American because I'm an American or, you know, else elsewhere. So. I, I just I, I find that really a, um, sort of an outdated way of thinking, a strange way of thinking. I also find it's just not true on the ground. My experience with tennis events is that it's one of two people. It's either hardcore fans who know everything, who want, you know, is Gilles Simone slicing more than usual, or else it's completely the opposite. And it's the most casual of the casual who are there because of some hospitality event or they get tickets once a year through their doctor who are out there for a day in the sun and they'll watch anyone. So the hardcore tennis fans don't care. I mean, it's not like, oh, if, if it's not John Isner or Jack Sock, I'm walking away. And the casual fans from, in the case of the U.S. Open, from the Wall Street communities or law firms, they don't care. They're there for uh, a, a fun day of tennis, and they may not have heard of any of the players on the court. So um, anyway, yeah, I, I thought that whole—I mean, I, I do think we should link this story. This was a story in The New York Times, again, about how American tennis tournaments are gravitating and migrating offshore, and the numbers are, are fairly stark. Um, I scribbled them down. So listen to this, Jamie. 1990, so less than 30 years ago. 24 of the 55 events on the WTA Tour were held in the United States. Now there's seven. And on the ATP Tour, 16 of 77. Actually, that's lower than I would have thought in 1990. Now only 11. Um, the flip side to that is this is a global sport, and the goal was never to saturate tennis with, with American events. I mean, in a way, I think it's a sign of health that you have much less concentration in one country than you used to. I mean, who whoever thought the women's championships would be played in in China. Right. And I think that's that's ultimately a good thing. Um, and most businesses would love this, right? Most businesses are dying to expand their product to new markets and take advantage of the global economy. So I thought the way it was framed, yeah, it's drastic that there's so m- many fewer uh, events in the U.S. I think Mark raised a good point. I mean, what, what is the USTA doing to try and stanch this? Um, if it's your job to promote and grow the sport of tennis, I'm, I'm not sure how you feel about that. But I think for tennis as an entity, for tennis as an organism, I think it's very healthy not to be so concentrated in, in one single country. Well, the the whole deal is that, you know, Americans used to have more options, right? So, you know, if you're a dad that you went to all these tournaments and now you're trying to put your kid on the same path, it's not the same. I think it's you know, probably akin to somebody growing up with an NFL or NBA team in their in their hometown or in their region, and now that team is no longer is in that city and they don't have anything nearby. So I think it's more of that. But I agree with you. I uh, I love the globalness of the sport, and I think it uh, I think it's good. We like the flavor. No, I I think that's this this comparison of tennis to there are no home games in tennis. Right. I mean, if you're a huge Roger Federer fan. You can follow him on social media and you can try and watch feeds from around the world. But if you're in the United States, he usually plays Canada or Cincinnati, um, often not both. This year he played Indian Wells in Miami. That hasn't always been the case. And he plays the U.S. Open. So leaving Laver Cup out of it, leaving 
the occasional exhibition. He was at Madison Square Garden a few years ago. But, I mean, Roger Federer may only play four events in the United States in North America all year. That makes it a challenge to be a Roger Federer fan. The flip side of that is Roger Federer is wildly popular in China, India, the Middle East when he goes to Australia. So um, someone said, I, I like this analogy. It's like stepping on a balloon. You know, if, if you put all the pressure on one end, it, the air goes to the other end and, and vice versa. So um, you know, America's loss is ultimately sort of the world's gain. But uh, I'm not sure it's a bad thing to be globalized. No, and I think that leaves the U.S. tournaments that are remaining with a little bit more to a little bit more on their plate to deliver, uh, you know, in, in other ways. And hopefully the players, as you say, will continue to, you know, choose to play in these tournaments. That That is a... I think generally an issue, as you, as you said, Roger Federer can choose to play tournament A one year and then next next year, you know, he might not play there again. So it's always a challenge when you're a fan and trying to follow one player or one tournament even. You're never going to get the same thing, uh, you know, every right. year. And I don't know if you heard, if you heard Mark talking, you, you'll notice he did not mention specific players playing in D.C. And I think the thinking is you run an event right. now, you just make it a fun event and a destination, and you have food and music and all of these add-ins. All right. Um, it was suggested we do a mailbag question on these podcasts, and I'm pulling one up. Let's do um, it. This is from about two hours ago. So C.M. Taylor asks, okay, John, what is going on with Sasha Zverev? He just lost his first match in Barcelona. I can't imagine him staying at number three much longer, nor can we. Uh, hopefully he finds his game. He's just ruining draws right now. Not really. A, well, I guess what's going on with Sasha Zverev would be the uh, would be the question. He does not thoughts? sound confident in himself. That's one thing. I mean, after this loss, I I don't expect him to be patting himself on the back. But he basically said something to the effect of, "I'm lost," or you know, "I I am in a hole and I don't know how to get out of it," sort of thing. So that doesn't always that does just not seem like the right attitude for someone. Uh, I think he realizes that he is just not. He's not playing great. He's he's missing missing backhands and he's not making shots and he's he's just not playing well. And I don't know how he's going to get out of a funk unless he makes a change at this point. Like a coaching change? Something. I mean, hmm. what is he uh what has he done to differently, you know, since he's kind of been in this rut and now he's not even winning first round matches. And it's not even Grand Slam. It's not Grand Slam. Yeah, right, which which unfortunately we're accustomed to. Um, it's funny because he came off biggest title of his career to close out 2018. And he said, all right, this guy has uh, this guy has arrived. On, now on the way up. look out world, on the way up. And he's got Lendl in his box, and he's ended 2018 on such a good note. And it's been, uh, it's been a dismal start to the year. I guess if you're going to be lost, you could do worse than being lost in Barcelona. Um, so before today, he is uh, he's twelve and six on the year, but um, it's it's been a rough go of it. I mean, I guess the one thing I would say in his favor is twenty two years old as of uh, as of this week. So, um, but you just worry how long it, how how long the the losses and just not playing well and coming up short at Grand Slam just ultimately affects him as a player in the long run. Uh, I think part of growing when you're younger is that you get those big wins and then you might have really bad losses, but you you still have like a hope that you're going to really get there. It seems like he's a little sh- shaky in, in terms of thinking that, okay, I'm a, I'm 
going to win a Grand Slam, you know. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're right. And I think as a mental proposition, it's one thing to say, I'm great week in, week out. I need to improve in best of five matches. Right. The predicament he's in right now, these uh, these last eight weeks or so in particular, that's a much different, uh, sort of a, a much different calculus. But I still say, and we don't talk about it enough, I think. I mean, I think the fact that this field is aging has so many benefits, right? So one of them is that we really get to know these players and their ups and downs. I think that it really helps when players play, if I'm a sponsor and I know that I can count on this guy for potentially 15 more years, that's really great. But I also think when you're a tennis player, and it used to not be this way at all. I mean, it used to be if you were 22 years old and you were struggling, that was an existential crisis. That was times ticking. And boy, they're... Not a lot of players north of 25 winning these majors. I've really got to straighten this thing out. You look at how tennis is being played today and the fact that, you know, the the three titans are all well north of 30 and doing just fine. And you say to yourself, if you're Sasha Zverev's coach or uh, someone on his support team, you say, listen, it, it's been a rough few weeks, but let's not lose sight of the big picture here. You're going to be out here for a decade plus more. So if you've got a, a rough 90-day window, don't worry, we can... Uh, work through this. So hopefully um, we'll see with such as Verif, but this has not been uh, not a particularly auspicious start to the year. And I also think, I mean, I don't know how much players really, I think it's very specific player to player, but this whole sort of alpha dog notion, I think some players could, could care less. I think other players are very, very cognizant of who is getting some of the, uh, the media attention and the media spotlight. And you get the feeling that with the Canadians and, and Tsitsipas reaching the semifinals in Australia, you get the feeling that um, not only from a win-loss perspective, but just sort of from a image perspective, um, Bloom's a little off the rose here. The good thing about tennis is that he yeah, still exactly. has three Grand Slams exactly. this year. So right. uh, he may be 12-6 and six on the year in the past, as you said, eight weeks or so. Not so great, but got a, we've got a long way to go. A lot of opportunities. That's why it's, it's not like boxing where you've, uh, <laughs> you're lucky to get two fights a year. Um, all right, that, uh, that does it for... This week, we had a lot of uh, interesting Fed Cup results that I hope don't get too lost in the shuffle. Um, we had uh, a lot of off-court tennis news. Uh, one of them was the resolution of this Justin Gimmelstab uh, legal situation. It'll be interesting to see sort of what the fallout from that is. And um, we are now entering the thick of clay season. Nadal, not off to a great start. Djokovic, not off to a great start. And someone wrote to me, I think, interesting. Boy, if Federer said, listen, if I, if I knew Fabio Fonini was winning uh, Masters Levels events, boy, maybe I would have uh, reconsidered my clay strategy. That was meant tongue-in-cheek. But I think fact remains some very interesting results to start off this clay season. Um, all right, that does it for this week. we got to give up the room. Jamie, thank you as always. Thank you. Thanks for Mark Ein for stopping in. We'll have another guest next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And have a good seven days. Thank you.